I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis in order to increase awareness and understanding of the U.S. Constitution among the American people. In this week's episode, I sat down with Carolyn Fredrickson, president of the American Constitution Society, Nolan McCarty, professor of politics and public affairs at Princeton, and David Wasserman, house editor for the Cook Political Report, for a memorable and illuminating discussion of the practical effects of gerrymandering on American politics, including its impact on polarization and competitive elections. Enjoy. So these uh, remarkable thinkers will really help us dig down on what the political harms, if any, of gerrymandering are. But before we do that, we have a great tradition in our Constitution-centered debates of taking constitutional votes. And you just heard that really remarkable discussion on the first panel. I want you to take a vote, and then you'll hear this discussion, which is on a related topic, and then we'll take another vote at the end and see who, if anyone, has changed his or her minds. And as you listen to the argument, be open to the arguments on the other side, be open to the possibility of separating your constitutional from your political views and see if your your views change. So this is the question is the one I asked for the closing arguments. Who believes after hearing the arguments that you just heard that partisan gerrymandering does violate the first amendment to the US Constitution? Getting a full 360 uh, vote count here. Uh, And who believes that partisan gerrymandering does not violate the constitution? Wow, okay, I would say a heavy majority in favor of a First Amendment violation. Listen now with an open mind to the arguments and see who changes his or her mind. This is not strictly a constitutional, but uh, also a political discussion, but as you heard from the last panel, the two questions are related. Uh, Carolyn, I wanna start with you, because you gave such a uh, strong presentation in a recent National Constitution Center Intelligence Squared debate on this question. What do you think the harm of partisan gerrymandering is? Well, I, you know, I, it's hard to come after um, Nick because I think he stated it so well. Um, but I, you know, I think everybody sort of grasps that the the partisan gerrymandering that we're seeing is, if not a cause of, is certainly correlated to the extraordinary partisanship that we see in our society. And I think the difficulty of you know the bodies like Congress to actually function, um, the 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 attitude of the American people now to their elected officials and the elected bodies is one of, you know, if not despair, certainly cynicism um, and dismay. Um, I think um, what we have is a system that seems so rigged to people that uh, many people decide not to participate at all. Um, and in many of these gerrymandered uh, districts, uh, they have an extraordinary um, um, fall off in terms of, I mean, they're obviously, they're not competitive. Um, and so and in many of them, the only, the only race that matters is the primary. Uh, and so people who are part of that uh, minority in that district start to feel that they don't, they shouldn't bother participating at all. So they stop voting. And people who get elected in those gerrymandered districts don't have to attend to the interests of those voters. Um, and so that I think it turns into you know, the situation um, that we heard about in Wisconsin, where you have a legislature that's not responsive to the voters um, because they come out of such secure districts, they have such little likelihood of losing 
uh, unless they lose in their primary. And that pushes them to the extremes. Um, and as a result, they, they, they push for legislative uh, proposals that are on the extreme so that they can win their primaries. And I think that just continues to exacerbate the overall cynicism um, and dismay that people have with our government and then uh, leads to even more fall off in democratic participation. I think as uh, you know, we should all be extraordinarily concerned with the, with the harm that that does to our democracy uh, as a whole, uh, because it then seems to be only a, a democracy in name, but not actually in practice. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Nolan, in a debate last year in Washington, you took uh, a different perspective to this question. Uh, Carolyn just argued that partisan gerrymandering is responsible for political polarization, as safe seats mean that low voter turnout, voters can choose extreme candidates who have no incentive to go to the middle of the general election. You disagree and believe that partisan gerrymandering is not responsible for political polarization. Tell us why. Okay, let me, let me back up one step on gerrymandering. It was actually defined at the beginning of tonight's session as being a partisan activity. There are lots of ways in which you can gerrymander that are not necessarily partisan. You can do a bipartisan gerrymander, which both parties collude to make as seats as safe as possible. Or you can partisan gerrymander. Those two things have very different features. Uh, the first, the bipartisan gerrymander, uh, describes a situation very much like Carolyn suggests, where there's lack of competition in any seat because they've been designed to be Democratic seats and Republican seats. But when we talk about partisan gerrymandering, the strategy for a majority party is quite different. What they would like to do is to concentrate the voters of the other party into a few seats, spread their voters out over a very large number of seats. So the ironic thing is that partisan gerrymandering actually creates more competitive seats, closer elections, uh, than, its than its bipartisan alternative. So there's, there's a theoretical issue in linking political polarization to partisan gerrymandering. It could be related to bipartisan gerrymandering, but we're in a world in which bipartisanship doesn't happen. So we have this, we have this paradox. Um, I've spent a lot of time just empirically, so that's the theoretical argument. I've spent a lot of time on this empirically. There's a few things worth noting empirically. Now, the first is that we observe polarization in the United States Senate and it tracks the polarization in the US House almost perfectly over time. Maybe the level's not as high, but there are other reasons to explain differences in levels, but the trends are the same. If we look at states that have one congressional district or two congressional districts, places where you don't expect gerrymandering to play much of a role, we see those members being more and more extreme over time. We also don't see measures of polarization in terms of the voting behavior of members of Congress jump at reapportionment. And finally, there's some advanced statistical work that asks the question, suppose we uh, artificially, randomly generate districts, what would polarization look like in the United States? It looks almost like the same that we have now. What's really happened to American politics over the course of time is that Democrats and Republicans have just gotten different over time. They have different constituencies, they have different policy priorities, and those tend to be reflected independently of how they're elected or what types of districts that, 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 that they come from. So my argument is always that, yes, we, we can be concerned about gerrymandering, in particular the impressions that gerrymandering creates with the public. But if we really want to understand partisan polarization, why Democrats and Republicans are different, we have to look at bigger, broader 
trends in our society, less on the kind of fine details of how districts are drawn. And just one more beat, because that's part of your argument. What are those bigger, broader trends that you believe are responsible for political polarization, aside from partisan gerrymandering? When we talk about political polarization, the main trends, especially when we're talking about it at the kind of congressional level, which is the, our focus here, or state legislatures, is that the United States is a much more heterogeneous society. Uh, it's economically, there's high, increased economic inequality, it's increased diversity ethnically, and so forth. We have seen broad regional realignments in the country so that we've seen the South become considerably more Republican and the Northeast become considerably more Democratic. Uh, apropos to tonight's discussion, we've seen uh, cities become much more uh, uniformly uh, Democratic, much more of a concentration of Democratic voters. So it's this combination of realignments and kind of uh, changes to the kind of underlying social structure of the United States, which I think are more important than how districts are drawn. Thank you so much for that. All right, uh, David, uh, Justice Wasserman, I should say, you can now adjudicate between these yeah. two very strong I'm not even views. a lawyer, don't promote well, me. You're here yeah. at the National Education <laughs> Center, so I, here's your commission. Um, I, I have a sense of what you uh, believe, because you wrote a piece for uh, the 538 blog in 2016, uh, trying to answer Nate Silver's question, why is compromise so hard in the House? And you gave five answers, geographic, Sorting, wait, I need my bipartisan constitutional reading glasses. <laughs> uh, geographic sorting, straight ticket voting, primaries have become the new general elections, uh, and uh, the, those are the main ones. Um, to tell the audience what you believe is the, course, the cause of uh, political polarization that's made compromise so hard in the House. Is it partisan gerrymandering, or is it some other factors? Well, it's not an either-or argument. I don't see it that way, because uh, Self-sorting and gerrymandering work together to produce polarization, and Professor McCarty is absolutely right. The biggest trend we've seen in the past several decades is actually the self-sorting of the American electorate. We've measured at the Cook Political Report, uh, we have our Partisan Voter Index, or PVI, that measures the partisanship of all 435 congressional districts. What we've found is that in 1997, 164 out of 435 districts were fundamentally competitive. That number has fallen 56% in the last 20 years to just 72 out of 435. And actually, we only rated 15 out of 435 House races as toss-ups last year. So we knew who was going to win in over 95% of the elections. But what we also found was that 83% of that decline was driven by self-sorting of voters themselves from election to election. Only 17% of that decline was attributable to redistricting years. And just to give you an idea of how badly segregated the American voting population has become by party, I conducted a study about six years ago on which two retail chains were the best predictors of where Democrats and Republicans live and vote. <laughs> and the top indexing chain for Democrats, no surprise, Whole Foods Market. The top indexing chain for Republicans, Cracker Barrel Old Country Store. Wow. <laughs> Pennsylvania has a few of, of each. Yes, we do. But, and actually, Pennsylvania has the closest point between a Cracker Barrel and a Whole Foods in Plymouth <laughs> Meeting. No joke. But, That's a great mall, actually. But yes. in 1992, Bill Clinton, when he won the White House, won 59% of counties that today have a Whole Foods and 40% of counties that today have a Cracker Barrel. That was a 19-point gap. It's gone up every election until 2016 
when Donald Trump won the White House, winning 76% of counties with a Cracker Barrel and 22% of counties with a Whole Foods. Now, I was going over these statistics <laughs> with a group of young Democratic professionals a couple years before this last election. And I actually, just as an aside, there was a young woman in the audience who raised her hand. She said, excuse me, did you mean Crate and Barrel? I've never <laughs> heard of Cracker Barrel. <laughs> and that just gives you an idea of the bubble a lot of Democratic voters live in. But that's the main driver here. Wow. I have to ask the obvious question. Is the whole metric going to be messed up now that Amazon has bought Whole Foods? <laughs> ask me in five years. Okay, good. Okay, Carolyn, so this is... Um, I, the audience has heard the argument about whether partisan gerrymandering or geographic sorting is more responsible for polarization, and uh, David said it's a mix of both. But let's address this geographic sorting question, because it sounds like even if... Uh, Nick Stephanopoulos' efficiency gap standard is adopted even if the Supreme Court strikes down the Wisconsin district. He said that's something like 10 out of 122 districts. It's not going to be that many that will fall. What will the remaining effect of this big sort be for progressives who are concentrated in big cities and unable to win uh, state legislative elections that are uh, defined geographically by single-member districts? Well, I mean, as I said when I started, it's, it's a correlation, it's not a causation. Um, but 17% is actually a really big number. If you look at how the House uh, of Representatives is divided, 17% would have an enormous impact on, on the composition of that body. And particularly as we're looking to the next election cycle, um, the possibility of, of control uh, flipping is, you know, is, is, is always a possible. Um, but post-redistricting, after uh, districts were reconfigured in light of uh, uh, data that actually tried to um, make districts that were uh, more fair, you'd actually have a very tightly contested House of Representatives. Um, and you wouldn't have you know, the situation now where the Democrats uh, in the last cycle won 1.4 million votes, I think that was the number, more than Republicans, and yet fell far short of their representation in the House. So I think, I mean, I think if we care about democracy, that's an enormous number. That's not a small number. It may be that more of the, the difference is attributable to people self-sorting, but I don't think when the control of government is determined by that 17%, that we can think that that's inconsequential. It's, it's extraordinarily consequential, and that 17% is based on um, maps that are drawn to give an extraordinary advantage to one party. And I have to say, in this case, to the Republican Party, because uh, I think experts like your colleague Sam Wang at Princeton have shown that the Republican-drawn maps are, have done, and Republicans have done this in a much uh, greater uh, number of times. And I think after the red map program um, that uh, Karl Rove ran in 2010 uh, to capture as many state houses as possible, the whole objective was to get ahead of the redistricting process to flip those state houses and then write those maps and lock in for the long term. And uh, the Republican state leadership committee, which um, ran these uh, elections, bragged about it after the election, how with a minority of votes, how they were able to capture a, a large majority of the seats. I think that is very troubling. N Nolan, uh, do you agree or disagree with Carolyn? If the Supreme Court were to strike down extreme partisan gerrymanders, 
would that make districts more competitive and minimize the situations where a party can win a minority of votes but get a majority of the seats? Uh, so let me just uh, semi-correct one thing. I think Professor Stefanovic said that 17% of maps would be judiciable, not that 17% of seats would change. And so my guess is, based on what I've seen, there would be a, a far fewer fewer changes uh, once those once those cases once those cases went forward. Um, I guess I'm not I guess I'm not sure the question. I mean, once you take away the partisan option in gerrymandering, what what replaces it? Uh, so the Supreme Court's not going to insist that states use commissions or do it anyway. It's just going to be a matter of saying what's going to be the effect of eliminating partisan considerations from districting. So there's, there's two possibilities which might work in opposing ways. One is that because of issues like geographic sorting, where Democratic voters are concentrated into cities, it's actually the case that I think Democratic mapmakers need to be able to use partisanship to justify, to justify un, unpacking these urban, these urban voters. So it could put constraints on the Democratic Party's attempts to offset these effects of geographic sorting. The other is they might fall back into the bipartisan gerrymandering, which I talked about, where simply the parties disagree. Well, if we can't do partisan gerrymandering, let's just all make all of our districts safe. And so we'd have, very, we'd have even fewer competitive districts. There'd be perhaps more proportionality, but we would be in a situation where there's completely Democratic districts, completely Republican districts, because you haven't incentivized parties to try to be aggressive in picking up these more, these more marginal seats. So, you know, because I'm a social scientist, I have three hands, and I'm going to use all three hands on them. So I, I don't know what the impact is going to be, because one thing we know about the, the social sciences is that there are always unintended consequences. And I think the intervention of the courts in a much more explicit way is ripe for these unintended consequences. And since they're unintended, I actually don't know what they're going to be. So uh, <laughs> um, uh, thanks for your candor. That's <laughs> admirable. Uh, David, so there's now this dispute about what the effect of a Supreme Court decision would be. But I know you caught all of our attention with that remarkable Whole Foods and Cracker Barrel analogy, which just shows how powerfully red and blue America are living in different universes, both physically and virtually. Tell us more about how that geographic sorting, along with the other factors you mentioned about straight ticket voting and, and primaries determining the general, has really caused polarization in Congress. And then I'm just going to ask you such a hard follow-up, which is what, if anything, could be done about it? Sure. Well, it was said earlier that technology has allowed the gerrymandering uh, you know, epidemic to run wild. And actually, what's allowed gerrymandering to be as, as powerful as a tool as it is, and I agree that it's a big, big problem, um, is actually the self-sorting of the American electorate. If you imagine a state where every precinct voted the exact same way, it would be possible, impossible to manipulate the boundaries in such a way as to give one party an advantage over the other. But now let's imagine a really, really polarized state, which Pennsylvania has become, most other states have become, between urban and rural areas. It's easier than ever before for the map maker to manipulate the boundaries to, uh, to win a higher share of seats. So I'm convinced it is a big, big problem, and that in the next cycle, if gone unchecked, the parties could virtually eliminate competitive congressional elections. I'm just not convinced, and I salute Nick and Eric McGee for devising this, this metric, I'm not convinced that it's workable as a legal standard. And I would, in fact, 
suggest that this is a problem not necessarily for pundits or political scientists, but a problem for mathematicians and computer scientists to solve. If, what if instead of looking at partisan data and racial data, we simply devised a computer algorithm to draw the shortest possible line to divide states into equal populist districts? I think technology can be part of the solution, not the problem. Um, thanks for that hopeful of hope. That's uh, excellent. Uh, Carolyn, other, other solutions? The court will or will not intervene. We're debating about what the effects will be, but it sounds like the problem is very serious and the geographic sorting is a big part of it. What are other solutions to the problem of uh, partisan entrenchment, where one party can entrench itself for decades to come, and to polarization? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, uh, in some states, voters have taken uh, law into their own hands and passed uh, ballot initiatives where they have set up nonpartisan uh, commissions to actually undertake the process. Uh, California was one of them, and I understand that the Democrats were very unhappy about that at the time. Um, worried about what it would do to their incumbency. Um, but they ga you know, gathered a, a, a nonpartisan group of people that um, worked um, to rewrite those districts. Other states have done the same thing. Um, and in some cases, it hasn't changed the composition of the, uh, of the electeds very much because they were somewhat reflective of what the population wanted. Um, but what it gave was an extraordinary a boost to people's confidence that the people they were voting for were actually representing them and cared about listening to them. Um, and so that's one mechanism that I think in certain places will certainly change the composition of the electeds because they will have to respond to a, a different electorate. They won't, you know, the, the, the common phrase is that, you know, under the current system that the elected officials get to choose their voters rather than voters choosing the elected officials. Well, the point of a nonpartisan commission would be to draw districts where the people were actually choosing who would serve them in the elected body. And I think that is one um, mechanism that could go a long way towards addressing both sort of the overall impact on people's faith in the system as well as the system. Uh, Nolan, what solutions do you think could make legislatures more uh, responsive and representative and could uh, reduce polarization? Um, so, uh, I'm not very good with uh, solutions. I mean, if, if, I, if I predicate my remarks on that the American society is much more, you know, heterogeneous uh, and that people are choosing to live with people with similar preferences, there's not a lot of policies that I can do to make us more homogeneous and to force people not to live where they want, where, where they want to live. Um, on the gerrymandering solutions, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of the technological solutions because one of the things I worry about is there are a lot of values that undergird districting. I mean, the districting is sort of the way in which we sort of shape people's political identities. I worry a little bit about the focus on partisan gerrymandering being that the only political identity that matters is partisanship. So there are a lot of districting principles like maintaining communities of interest, uh, ensuring that uh, racial and ethnic minorities have opportunities to elect candidates, uh, candidates of their choice, uh, you know, et cetera. So I worry about whether or not just a technocratic solution to these kind of fundamental uh, va values uh, trade-offs. On polarization, I think, you know, I would put much more emphasis on trying to understand what's gone wrong in the campaign finance system. Uh, the amount of spending, especially by very, very wealthy people, has had a really important 
impact. For, for a long time, political scientists sort of doubted that this was going on, but the more recent data just really suggest that, uh, uh, that, that the advanced uh, activities of the wealthy and the political process have had big effects. So let me give you one data point. In 1980, uh, the top 10,000 donors, very wealthy people, uh, gave about 8% of the total contributions to American federal elections. Now that number is 45%. And so I really think again, that, you know, if we want to really concentrate on the fundamental sources of political dysfunction in the U.S., it's the, it's the inequalities in participation fostered by our campaign contribution system that's far more important uh, than the district boundaries. Just so we understand, um, how does the uh, electoral dysfunction of uh, campaign finance contribute to polarization? Well, one of the things that's... Uh, in the old campaign finance system, where we worried a lot about what corporations and labor unions were doing, there was kind of a countervailing, there was kind of a countervailing effect in that uh, corporations wanted to get access from both sides of the aisle, so their contributions were not particularly partisan. Labor unions uh, tended toward the Democrats, but they were very pragmatic. What we've seen is an explosion of individual contributions, primarily by people with more ideological agendas, both on the right uh, and on the left. And my argument is simply that the voice of these more ideological individual contributors uh, is being heard uh, much more, and that it makes it very much harder for people who are both dependent on campaign contributions from these individuals, but also worried about the independent expenditures that these individuals can bring into their districts, especially in primaries, that has a much bigger impact on their behavior in legislatures uh, than the composition of their districts because the voters' voices are, in any type of district are being drowned out by the donors' voices. Very interesting. David, would you agree or disagree that this uh, role of money in politics, which uh, no one says means that uh, big donors on the left and the right who are extremely ideological can pull both parties to the extreme left and the right is a source of polarization. And what, if anything, can be done about that? Well, I think the mistake we often make, again, is, is that we treat these as independent effects, uh, when in fact we have a lot of comorbidities in American politics, <laughs> right? <laughs> nice. And when we think about the way districts are drawn, it amplifies the, the sorting that we've already had, which in turn means that if there are very few competitive seats by the time we get to November, then primary elections, as Caroline said, have essentially become the new general elections. And in fact, in 90% of districts, I think, uh, in a neutral political environment at least, the primary election is tantamount to the general election. We've seen that increasingly in House races. And th what that means Guess how many voters actually turned out to vote in, in congressional primaries the last time we had a midterm election? 14.6%. That means that 7% of the people on the farthest left end of the spectrum and 7% of the people on the farthest right end of the spectrum are essentially electing more than 90% of members of Congress. And in turn, what that means is that it's easier than ever for very wealthy individuals or, uh, or people who can raise a lot of money from very ideological sources to capture a primary in which a, only a small handful of voters participate. So that's how all these factors are working together to incentivize extremism and disincentivize cooperation. 
Wow. So this conversation is moving broadly, but this is directly relevant to uh, many of our concerns here. Carolyn, you are co-chair, along with Lee Otis of the Federalist Society of the National Constitution Center's Madisonian Constitution for All Commission. We are uniting uh, senators and representatives from both parties, including Mike Lee and Chris Coons, to ask what would James Madison think of our current Congress, presidency, courts, and media, and how can we resurrect Madisonian values of thoughtful deliberation and enlightened representation. Today, we have on the table this possibility that direct primaries are one dysfunction that are polarizing Congress in a way that is making deliberation impossible. One of the last great opponents of the direct primary was my uh, new hero, William Howard Taft, <laughs> the subject of my next book. Should we get rid of the direct primaries and is a good alternative the California solution of open primaries where the top two vote getters then go to a runoff and uh, both parties can run? Uh, you know, I think we should be trying different approaches, and that has certainly um, seemed to stimulate, again, some greater engagement um, uh, among the population. Um, you know, in speaking of Madison, I think, you know, he, he was one who really believed that the House was going to be the body that was going to turn over regularly and how important that was. So to your point, um, if, I, if you don't mind me going back to the money and politics piece, I think why they are so related is that a lot of those same donors, and I completely agree with you that the, that the money in politics is a big factor in the polarization, those same donors are funding the redistricting efforts. Um, they're the ones you know, who are funding these state uh, efforts to, to capture a few seats in a state house to flip it and then develop maps. So there's a very close alignment between the interests of those, of those partisan funders um, uh, in both influencing the maps and then influencing what the members do when they get elected. Um, so I think these things are quite, are quite joined. But, you know, I think we should be looking at open primaries. Um, I, I, you know, I think there's, there's got to be a better way than the way we're doing it. What uh, 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 we talked earlier about uh, uh, the proportional representation. Um, Maine has been, um, has a proposal to move to multi-member districts. Um, and I think it's been held up by the courts, but, um, but will go into effect in 2020. Um, it'll be really interesting to see what happens out of that and whether people start to feel like my vote's counting and so therefore I'm going to vote. Um, if you're one of those people in a district where uh, you're not one of the majority and there's a primary and there's, you're, most of these races don't even field somebody from the other party if there's such a lock um, on the, the, the majority party in that district, there's not even a candidate to vote for. People are definitely not turning out. Um, and I think we, you know, as a society need to grapple with what, how we envision democracy. Um, when we have these kind of numbers of participation, you know, it's, it's very troubling. N Nolan, might uh, solutions like multi-member districts work is one of the sources of this problem that 1842 law where Congress said that congressional elections have to have single-member districts, should that be reconsidered? Uh, what are other solutions? And in the course of, uh, you know, answering, you had a very stark solution, which really got everyone's attention during the last debate about how extreme polarization is now. Maybe you could share it, that and tell us whether it's so extreme that even these solutions aren't going to help. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, I'm not going to remember the anecdote. You might have to give me a better hint. Uh, I'll just say Civil War. Which Civil is, War. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, one That's of the things that I've done uh, in my career is uh, develop and techniques of measuring political polarization. And uh, so we have a, a technique which measures political polarization in the US House and the Senate 
uh, using roll call votes, and so we're able to go back for very long periods of time. And uh, the levels of polarization that we see today sort of rival those that we saw during Reconstruction. So if you imagine a situation in which country just fought a civil war and one party thought the other party was composed of traitors, you'd have a pretty good picture of what our current political system looks like. So I, I'm, not under, I'm not dismissing polarization as, a, as an important phenomenon. Um, in theory, uh, multi-member districting done the right way might address uh, some of these problems. Um, so take, take an example, just say instead of having 20 districts, you had 10 two-member districts. Well, that's half as much gerrymandering, so if you're concerned about district boundaries, it's, it's 10 fewer districts as you have to draw. And it also gets around my problem of having the map designers design, uh, define political communities, because if you can build coalitions within districts to support one or the other of the two candidates, uh, you know, representation can, uh, of different types of political interests can, uh, can evolve kind of naturally in that setting. Now, you have to do it correctly. New Jersey, my, my home state, does it incorrectly. Uh, they, they do have two member districts, but every voter gets two votes. And so it still is a very majoritarian system in that all the Democratic voters cast two votes for Democrats and the Republicans cast their two votes for Republicans. So it doesn't quite get to these features uh, uh, that, that I'm trying to stress. Let me just add, add one thing to the, the, the previous set of comments about the lack of competition in, in congressional elections and its implications for primaries and money. I, I, I totally agree with all that. But I think there's one thing that's really worth remembering. There was a graphic that went around social media a couple of weeks ago that showed the distribution of presidential voting across congressional districts in the US House and, what, and also showed it across states. And people were just retweeting this like mad because it's like, look at how much more variation there is in presidential voting outcomes across congressional districts. But the truth is, it was much more significant at the state level. It was really the states that had become much more bimodal in terms of their partisan support. So a lot of these pernicious features we talk about in these House elections, that all the competition takes place you know, in the primaries, there's very little competition uh, it, you know, in, in House elections. It's all true of the Senate without redistricting. I mean, we're going to go into we're going to go into a situation in 2018 where the Republicans have a bare majority of a bare majority of senators. They're going in with a very unpopular president. Yet most people think it's the House that's in play and not the Senate because states are just as bad, if not worse, than House districts at that point. And that doesn't really have anything to do with with, with gerrymandering. One other point on this is that. You know, back in you know November, November 2016, we all remember uh, the Democratic candidate for president got three million more votes than the Republican candidate, yet lost the Electoral College very badly. That's totally because of the geographic sorting of, of voters, and that in states that are heavily urban, Hillary Clinton ran up big vote totals, and in states that were less urban, uh, Donald Trump won narrow victories. That's the kind of gerrymandering story in a nutshell, yet it was all done at the state level as part of electoral college. It's not a defense of electoral college, not to justify that outcome, but just to say that some of the phenomena that we've been talking about that are dysfunctional about American politics are deeper than the, just the simple drawing of district boundaries. David, uh, last question and then closing statements. 
in your piece, you say that uh, our legislative process is not designed to withstand the current levels of partisan polarization in the America and the fear that the process is rigged is uh, an existential threat. So how, how serious is this problem of polarization? And if you had to pick one solution, what would it be? Well, actually, the title of the article was The American Political System Isn't Rigged. It's even worse than that. Uh, because if it were rigged, we could arrest the riggers and get on with it, right? Uh, but in fact, what, what we're seeing is a, a confluence of, of these factors. You know, I, I, I don't uh, necessarily prescribe one as, as the answer, but, uh, and as a proud New Jerseyan who grew up right, right across the river from here, I, I hate to say that California is a model for reform for the country, but I have to say, I think the top two primary system has potential. Uh, as a moderating force uh, for, uh, for the way we elect members of Congress. If we think about a member of Congress who's faced with a tough vote, um, where if they go against their party's interest, they'd lose their next primary, then the top two system provides them with an avenue to win re-election. They don't need to necessarily win uh, the most votes in the first round in a closed primary of, of just their party. Uh, they can advance to the general election where it's perhaps a Republican versus a Republican. And the party that is not represented on the ballot can choose the more moderate of those two or the vice versa with Democrats. So I do think it has uh, potential. And I think we also need to, to, need to keep in mind uh, that, uh, you know, multi-member multi districts, uh, you know, have, have some potential as well. I'm not exactly sure how, how that would be imposed, but I'm, I'm open to it. So like all great conversations, this one has been really wide ranging and we started with polarization and we've now concluded that the problem, the Madisonian problem, meaning that legislatures are responsive to extremes rather than to the uh, majority of the people is worse than we thought may be responsible uh, for uh, partisan gerrymandering, but also has other factors, including money in politics, direct primaries, low voter turnout. We've identified some solutions from multi-member districts to open primaries, but now we have to return to the debate subject. And just for closing statements, because the audience has to vote again, I know this has been more of a political uh, but a, uh, than a constitutional discussion, but the two are uh, related, so the question is gonna be this, and uh, first word is to you, Carolyn. Uh, what is the harm of partisan gerrymandering and does it violate the Constitution? Well, you know, I think the partisan gerrymandering clearly um, uh, contributes. It may not be the cause or the sole cause of polarization, but it clearly contributes to it. Um, on the harm, um, there are these uh, the, the question of associational rights and of, of people's ability to have representation that is responsive to them. That's both the harm in a constitutional sense. It's also the harm um, in a societal sense in, in sort of what binds us together as a democracy, uh, this belief that our government um, is responsive to the voters and not responsive to the elected officials who then choose their voters so they can get the outcomes they want. Um, there's a the clear polarization in American society, it's not gonna be solved completely um, by having a better system, a fairer system of redistricting, but it will be somewhat mitigated. Uh, and I think uh, we owe it to our democracy to try. Thank you very much for that. Nolan, what is the harm of partisan gerrymandering and does it violate the Constitution? 
so I'm not an attorney, so I have a little bit of a difficulty with the constitutional question. Uh, let, me deal with, let me deal with the harm. Uh, uh, I actually think that the harms are far less considerable than most people suggest. As I suggested, uh, I think the worst form of gerrymandering would be a bipartisan form that just simply reified existing boundaries and created no opportunities for any political contestation whatsoever. The extent to which partisan gerrymandering, while imperfect in a variety of ways, at least incentivizes parties to try to go after that marginal competitive district to spread their voters more, more over a wider part of the state than they otherwise would, uh, perhaps creates some opportunities, imperfect opportunities, but some opportunities uh, for, uh, for competitive elections. One of the things that drives some of the measures of uh, partisan bias, such as efficiency gap, is, is in fact just that, that the party that's slightly larger is creating less safe districts for itself, and if it gets, if it gets lucky, then there's gonna be a big efficiency gap. If it gets unlucky, it could lose a lot of seats, and the efficiency gap would flip in the other direction. And so I think we have to be careful about ruling out partisan gerrymandering, because I think it's probably the only source that gives politicians incentives to try to create districts that are at all competitive uh, in, a, in, a part, in a partisan sense. Um, and I also think if you're, you know, you're concerned about the kind of pernicious effects of uh, political geography, the concentration of urban voters, I think partisan gerrymandering might be a tool uh, that can be used to offset that, taking partisanship into consideration when trying to uh, you know, unpack uh, the cities. And so taking that off the table might, uh, you, you know, might lead to lack of opportunities to create some competition in that direction. Thank you so much for that. David, last word to you. What is the harm of partisan gerrymandering? And if you like, does it violate the Constitution? Well, I think the Democrats are at a geographic disadvantage at all levels, right? And I think it's because of the geography of the electorate. They're clustered in cities, which means that they're underrepresented in the districts that are at the fulcrum of control of the House. They're clustering in big states like California and New York where additional Democratic votes don't win them any additional electoral votes. And they're also, uh, in, in terms of the Senate, are underrepresented because rural, more Republican states account for, for a disproportionate share of the Senate. So unless Democrats really grapple with that, they're not going to address uh, uh, what's ailing them in the electorate today. And I think a resettlement program would actually be more beneficial for <laughs> Democrats than redistricting reform. Uh, but look, I do agree that, that there is harm in redistricting. How you go about identifying that harm, I think is problematic. When, uh, when Nick said earlier that there would be 10 good candidates uh, of maps to overturn with the efficiency gap, my reaction is that's not enough. I see gerrymanders all over the place that are clear uh, manipulations of, of the map for, for partisan gain. Uh, but in wave elections, like one that we might see in 2018, you also have redistrictings that can backfire. Here in Pennsylvania, Republicans stretched their advantage across the Philadelphia suburbs really thin across three districts. And even though each of those three seats, the sixth, seventh, and eighth, each lean towards Republicans, you could see all three of them fall to Democrats in a wave. So in that sense, uh, Professor McCarty's right. The, the thing that we'd have to fear most is probably a bipartisan gerrymander. 
We're going to take our final vote in a moment, but first, please join me in thanking our panelists. Wow, this has just been an extraordinarily educational discussion. I have learned so much, and I know you have too, about the complexity of this crucial question and the need to approach it from all angles. I'm thrilled to report that over the next three years, through this Madisonian Constitution Commission that Carolyn and Leotis and our senators and representatives are chairing, we're gonna have panels, symposia, podcasts, discussions here in Philadelphia and around the country through our partnership with the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society to dig into each of these questions. What would Madison think of our current Congress, presidency, courts, and media, and how can we resurrect Madisonian values today. And that's why I'm going to put in the plug one more time. I need you to join the National Constitution Center. If you are not members, we need your support, we need your engagement, and we need your passion for constitutional education so that you can spread the light to others. Um, finally, before we take our vote, thanks to the great generosity of John and Joan, we're about to have an amazing reception up on the second floor with excellent food and drink, and it is free and open to all, and I strongly suggest you go up and enjoy it because it's going to be excellent. Uh, conversation and excellent refreshments. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for our votes. You've listened hard to the discussion. You've done it with an open mind. So I want you, once again, separating your, your political from your constitutional views to tell me who believes, after hearing the arguments, that partisan gerrymandering violates the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> I can just, I'm gonna make myself dizzy turning around. And who believes that it does not violate the First Amendment to the Constitution? And who changed, his, who changed his or her vote after hearing the remarkable discussion tonight? We have one possibility. Uh, wonderful. Uh, great. And uh, whose mind was open to the arguments on the other side? Wonderful. Well, that is what we are striving to achieve with our constitutional education efforts. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, John and Joan. See you upstairs. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Nugana Etze. Here's the big ask for today's podcast. Please rate us on iTunes and other platforms. It helps other people learn about what we do so they can become constitutional learners as well. And please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall, on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast apps. So Live at America's Town Hall is the feed of all of our phenomenal traveling town hall debates. We've had such good ones recently. If you listen to Live at America's Town Hall, you can hear all of the Constitution Center's other great live constitutional content. Lawyers, alert! We're now offering CLE credit for Select America's Town Hall programs. You know how dull it is to watch those bad videos for CLE? Now you can watch great Constitution Center content and get credit for it at the same time. It's such a thrill and it'll also help support the Constitution Center's work. So visit our website, click debate and upcoming programs for more information and stay tuned for on-demand courses as well. So that's a revenue opportunity to support the Constitution Center, but you all know the importance of philanthropic support because despite that congressional charter that now our listeners are reciting back to their professors uh, as a sign of their devotion to our catechism, we don't get any meaningful government support 
we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by this nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. So please consider becoming a member, signaling your devotion to this community of lifelong learning. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. Thank you.